Well, please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, the book of Acts. The Acts of the Apostles, or really more accurately, the Acts of the Ascended and Risen Lord Jesus Christ through His Apostles, Acts chapter 9. This isn't really a typical Christmas Eve sermon, but I do believe it will be pertinent to uh, the season of the year, not only with the holiday tomorrow, but also just with the year drawing to a close and uh, us looking at a new year that lies ahead. I wanted to preach a, a timely message this morning and really been desiring that the Lord would uh, give me uh, a message to preach. And the preparation and the burden for this sermon was, uh, was a bit different than than um, the way I would typically prepare when I'm just preaching through 1 Corinthians and I, I know the text and I know uh, where I'm going to be. I really wanted to be sensitive to the Spirit of God and I do believe that this is exactly what He would have me to preach to you this morning. And I just want to look at one verse. Uh, you know, there's different styles of preaching and different types of preaching. All preaching should be expository preaching, meaning that all preaching should be driven by what the Word of God says. Uh, but there's a misconception in our day that expository preaching equals consecutive sequential preaching, meaning verse by verse. Now that is how we preach around here. We preach through books of the Bible. We pre we're preaching right now through 1 Corinthians verse by verse. So the next sermon will be the sermon that comes after this sermon, right? Um, that's one type of expository preaching. But if you look through the history of the church, you find that there was another form of preaching that was truly expository, but wasn't necessarily consecutive. It was the way the Puritans preached. It was the way one of the greatest, if not the greatest, preacher of the English language ever, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, preached. And it was what you might call textual preaching, where he would take, or the Puritans would take, a, a verse or sometimes even just a phrase or a word from a verse, and uh, use the whole of Scripture to exposit that verse. And um, a, a Puritan sermon basically had three points to the outline. Uh, they would show the, the meaning of the text, and then they would show the doctrine uh, that, that, that is contained in that text, and then the rest of their message would be the application of the text. And one, one person said, that true preaching begins where application begins. And if that's true, then there's not a whole lot of preaching going on in many churches. Because what I hear often is a sermon that goes like this, where the first 45 minutes of the sermon is a doctrinal lecture, where you're talking about Greek words and Latin pretexts and all of these different things. Uh, and then the preacher gets to the end and he says, now let me close with three points of application. And I've heard some good sermons that follow that outline, but I believe that really application needs to be all throughout the sermon. The whole of the message needs to be applicatory. If all we're doing is giving a doctrinal lesson, we're not preaching, we're lecturing. And there's a place for lecturing, but in the pulpit on the Lord's Day is not a place for lecturing. It's a place for preaching. So I want to preach to you today from Acts chapter 9, and I want to consider verse 31. Acts chapter 9 verse 31, and the title of my sermon is A Portrait 
of a revived church. A portrait of a revived church. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 31. These are the words of God. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. Self-reflection and self-assessment can be healthy and helpful practices both for individual Christians and for churches as a whole. As the year draws to a close, I've been pondering all the Lord has done in us and through us in 2023. This last week when Abigail and I were out of town and we visited uh, Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and we're in the prayer meeting there, and they were talking about some different things going on in their church. It made me think about some of the different things going on in our church, and I was able to spend a good portion of the week just just pondering, just thinking and recollecting all that God has done in, in this year, but also really since this uh, church began in God's providence, January of 24 will be three years that we've existed here as a local New Testament church. And uh, some of you have been here for uh, the majority of that time. Some of you have been here for the majority of this year. But God has done so much in this short amount of time. And and he's giving us signs that and indications that he's not done with us. And he's still doing things with us. And so I've been seeking the Lord's face for a message to preach to you this morning with really three objectives in mind. I want this message, number one, to be an expression of thankfulness for what God has done. I hope that uh, I will do a, a, a good job of conveying to you a spirit of thankfulness. And I hope that you will will be caused to be thankful for all that God has done. But secondly, I want this message to be an encouragement. An encouragement. I want us to be encouraged and comforted as we think of his continued goodness. What he's doing right now. What, what is on the horizon. What lies ahead. But I also want this message to be a challenge. To be an exhortation. As we consider the coming year. As we consider... The, the goals, and as we consider the, the opportunity that we have as a church, may we be challenged, may we be exhorted this morning. I was gripped by this verse of Scripture. I was praying through these things that I'm sharing with you and thinking about all that the Lord has done. And, and I'm praying, and I'm seeking God's will, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm searching through the Scriptures, not really looking in particular, but as I'm reading the Scriptures, this verse just jumps off the page and just grabs me. And that is because it describes both what we have been experiencing as a church, but also what we want more of as a church. It's, it's great when you read the Word of God, and sometimes you read a verse, and uh, you, you, you are struck with conviction because you realize I don't have any of that. And sometimes you read a verse and you are struck with thankfulness because you realize I have that. But then sometimes you read a verse and you realize I have that, but I want more of that. And that's kind of what Acts 9.31 did for me as I think about my own life, but most importantly and mainly our life together as a church. We have been praying 
for God to do a great and mighty work in our midst. We have been praying for revival. We have been praying for God to do with us what he did with the churches in this verse. This verse is a portrait of a revived church, or I could say a portrait of revived churches. The, there's a textual variant here in, in Acts 9.31. Uh, the, the critical text says uh, the church. It has the word church in the singular, but uh, the, the received text has the word church in the plural. And just looking at the verse, that's obviously the correct reading of the text because he mentions churches throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria. So he's not talking about one church. He's talking about uh, a plurality of churches in a general geographic region. And this verse, verse is a portrait of revived churches. Now, I've chosen this title very carefully. Notice I did not say that this verse is a portrait of revival. Right? One might argue that this Verse isn't giving an account of revival. You know, this isn't a revival. This is just a healthy period of the church. Well, okay, if, if you want to be that nitpicky with it, go ahead. But I don't think anyone would deny that this verse depicts, at least in part, what revival would look like if God were pleased to give it. Okay? So if you say, well, this isn't revival, fine. Uh, but if God gave revival, is, is not this what it would look like? Acts 9, verse 31. This verse sums up what we've been praying for as a church, what we've been desiring of the Lord. And let me say at the outset that I do believe God has given some answers to these prayers. So don't think I'm going to come to <laughs> Acts 9.31 and just you know, try to beat you all over the head with it and say, uh, you know, we're, we're failing and we need to get to this mark. No, I, I actually, I want to begin by saying, as I read Acts 9.31, it causes me to be thankful because I see some of this in this assembly. I don't believe we've seen revival, but I do believe God has been pleased to bestow upon us some measure of the gifts in verse 31. Rest, peace, edification, fear of the Lord, comfort of the Holy Spirit. But I also believe there's more. There's more for us to pray for. There's more for us to seek after. So in this message, I want to give thanks, I want to encourage, and I also want to challenge. And I want this to be especially heavy in practical application. I want this to be a time for us as, as we consider the end of the year, we consider a new year, we consider everything that we're heading towards as a church. I want this to be a time for us to consider how things are between us as a church and our relationship and our communion and our closeness and our nearness with our Lord. However, I'm not going to give you the practical application. Rather, I want to, I want to just consider this verse with you and along the way ask you some very pointed questions. And I hope that these questions will cause you to search your heart and to consider yourself. It's so easy as Christians and as churches to just get in this routine where we're just going through the motions and we don't stop to actually consider the, the state of our soul. What is the spiritual health of the church like? It's not measured, by the way, by new buildings. That's not a measurement of the spiritual health of a church. You can get a new building and be corrupt to the bone. Right? So I want us to stop and really think 
about how things are going. And I think as we answer those questions, honestly, there will be some questions that will cause us to rejoice and some questions that will cause us to be convicted. (laughs) But whatever the Lord would have us to do, let us do it. Whatever he saith unto you, do it. That's what the Bible says. It's a great principle by which to live your Christian life and by which to govern a church. And I want you to know that these are questions that I first had to ask myself. And I ask them to you out of love for your soul and a desire to see us flourish as a church. It's God's church. Well, there's four specific features of this portrait. Think of verse 31 as a picture, and there's four specific features of this portrait. And I want to bring them to the forefront of your vision, but you must understand that these points build upon one another. So, of course, you know, a typical sermon, you got point one, point two, point three, but don't think of them as, as divided from one another, but rather they, they build upon one of each other. There is a progression in this verse that I believe reveals the pattern of revival, that reveals the pattern of a healthy church. And this progression also reveals what we should be focused on and striving towards. So let's look at this verse. Let's consider it under four headings here. Number one, I want you to see in this verse the pacification. There is a pacification. What do I mean by that? Well, to be pacified is to be at rest, to have peace. And, of course, the verse begins in verse 31. Then had the churches rest. Now, a bit of context is needed to understand the thrust of this statement, right? Uh, Then had the churches rest implies what? That before they didn't have rest. In Acts chapter 7 and 8, the church was under intense persecution following the preaching of Stephen. In Acts 9, the man who was arguably the greatest leader in that persecution was radically converted on the Damascus road. Now you might think that would have led to an end of the persecution, right? Paul is converted He's not persecuting the church anymore. Persecution comes to an end. No. Actually, what happened was the change of the motivation of the persecution. Saul was no longer the one doing the persecuting, but it was his preaching that caused the persecution. Saul, the, the former persecutor of the church, became Paul, the great preacher of the gospel, and as he's preaching the gospel, he incites the persecution of the Jews all the more. How much? Well, so much that they actually threatened to kill him. So in verse 30 of Acts chapter 9, he has to flee to avoid death. And it is actually his fleeing that brings a respite to the persecution. So in verse 31, Saul leaves, goes to Tarsus, and now the churches have rest. The church, the churches begin to experience an unusual time of peace. And when I read this, I can't help but think both of the general situation of the church in America today and of our church in particular. See, as American Christians, we are not experiencing the intense flames of persecution that have so been so common throughout the history of the church and, by the way, are still the reality for many of our brothers and sisters throughout the world. 
We're not under constant threat of death for living the Christian faith. We have the luxury of coming to church freely, wearing nice clothing, and worshiping out in the open with nice copies of the Bible and nice facilities, right? And again, I I want really to be very specific in terms of our current situation because you you have to be balanced. Uh, God has not called us to a life of asceticism. You know what I mean by that? Where we just have to deny uh, any kind of worldly comfort, right? God has not called us to be hermits. God has not called us to to take vows of poverty. Okay, why am I saying this? Well, because I, I just want you to have this perspective. We, as a church, are excited because we are moving into a new building that will be nicer and more comfortable and bigger and greater, yet many churches around the world still to this day are worshiping God in grass huts under constant fear of their lives being taken from them simply because they believe the gospel. Now that doesn't mean we can't have another building. It's not what that means. It just means we need to keep these things in a perspective. And we need to realize that we both this particular church and really churches in the Western world are in a season of rest, a season of peace. Our church, this church, has experienced the strain and the tension of conflict, conflict in the church. We've experienced that, haven't we? We've experienced what it's like to have sin in the church that has to be dealt with. We've experienced what it's like to have attitudes and personalities in the church that clash. And, you know, tension in a church is felt. You feel it. Even if you don't verbalize it, right? Even if nobody verbalizes, I have a problem with so-and-so or I have a problem with this that happened, you just kind of feel it. And it puts a, it puts a damper on everything you do. It puts a damper on your prayer meeting. It puts a damper on your worship. It puts a strain on the preaching. Just, that's just what happens. But when God removes tension, you feel that too. You feel the liberty. You feel the comfort. You don't come to church and walk on eggshells. You don't come to church with a chip on your shoulder. You, you come peacefully. That's the season we're in right now. This is the season we've been in for a few months now. And it's a sweet, precious season. It's a season of peace and rest. We ought to thank God and praise his holy name for such a season. Because it's he that gives these seasons. How do I know that? Well, because the flesh is is contentious. The flesh is divisive. It's the spirit that gives peace. It's the spirit that gives liberty. So if we have peace and liberty in the church, that means the spirit of God is ministering amongst us. But we must also remember that these seasons do not last forever. Times will come when things will not be as peaceful as they are now. I'm not trying to prophesy doom and gloom. I'm just simply stating the reality of it. If you want to... I mean, I'm, I, I even hesitated whether or not to mash record this morning just because I knew I wanted to be a bit more personal. But if you want to be a, a church hopper that skips around every time the first inkling of trouble arises and you want to just coast... You can do that very easily in America because there's a church on every corner. But if you want to be committed 
to a body and to have deep relationships that glorify Christ and grow you in the faith, then you better be ready to endure times of peace and endure times of trial. That's right. We must, therefore, here's the, the, why am I telling you this? Here's why. We must, therefore, use a time of peace as a season of fortification and preparation for the trials that will surely come in the future. What we find in Acts chapter 9 and verse 31 is that God gave the church a season of rest and they did not waste it. They used it to their advantage. Calvin says of this verse, quote, Therefore, let us learn not to abuse external peace in banqueting and idleness. What's banqueting, right? We're just living it up. It's partying. We're just feasting, right? And we should enjoy the good gifts of God, but we shouldn't waste it away in banqueting or idleness. We know what that is, sitting around doing nothing. No, but listen to what Calvin says. But the more rest we have given us from our enemies to encourage ourselves to go forward in godliness while we may. Though the churches had peace, yet they were not drunken with delights and earthly joy. I love that. They weren't drunk. Did they have earthly delights? Yes, they sure did. Do we have earthly delights? Yes, we sure do. But don't be drunk with them. But trusting to God's help they were more emboldened to glorify God. <clears throat> These churches had peace, but they didn't sit around and squander their peace. So what God is teaching us in this verse is, don't waste your rest. Don't waste your rest. There was a great story in the Old Testament. I'm, I, turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 14. It's a great story in the Old Testament of an Israelite king who made a great use of a time of rest. In fact, if you study the history of the, the northern and southern kingdom, you'll find that uh, the northern kingdom was given over to wicked kings. In the southern kingdom, there were five revivals under five good kings, and one of those kings is the king Asa. And, and I want you to see how Asa used a period of rest that God had given his kingdom. 2 Chronicles 14, read with me beginning in verse 2. Notice the Bible says, And Asa did that which was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. For he took away the altars of the strange gods and the high places, and break down the images, and cut down the groves, and commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers, and to do the law and commandment. Also he took away out of all the cities of Judah the high places and the images, and the kingdom was quiet before him. Notice verse 6. And he built fenced cities in Judah, for the land had rest. And he had no war in those years, because the Lord had given him rest. So Asa, king of the nation of Judah, the Lord gives them rest. What does Asa do? Does Asa say, oh, great, there's no war. Let's have a party. Great, there's no war. Let's live it up. I want you to pay very close attention to what Asa does in verse 7. Therefore, he said to Judah, let us build these cities and make about them walls and towers, gates and bars, 
while the land is yet before us. Because we have sought the Lord our God, we have sought him, and he hath given us rest on every side, so they built and prospered. And Asa had an army of men that bear targets and spears out of Judah, 300,000, and out of Benjamin that bear shields and drew bows, 200 and fourscore thousand, and all these were mighty men of valor. He said, there's no war, Asa. Why are you training the army? Why are you building fortifications? There's rest, Asa. Don't you know you're not in a time of fighting? You need to be partying and banqueting and living it up. And Asa says, no, we're going to build. We're going to fortify. Why? Because look what happens in verse 9. And there came out against them Zerah the Ethiopian with an host of a thousand thousand and three hundred chariots and came unto Marishah. Then Asa went out against him and they set the battle in array in the valley of Zephathah at Marishah. Trouble came. Trouble came. Trials came. Verse 11, And Asa cried unto the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing with thee to help. Sometimes we think our trials and our troubles are just so big and we'll never overcome them and we can't get past them. And Asa says, it's nothing with you to help. $800 a month to rent a bill. That's nothing for God. It's overwhelming for me, but it's nothing for God. It's nothing with thee to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee. He wasn't drunk with his earthly comforts. Do you notice he has this period of rest, but he doesn't trust in that period of rest. He trusts in the Lord. In the good years, in the bad years, in the lean years, in the fat years, in the rich years, in the poor years, we must keep our trust in the Lord our God. Amen. Whether he's adding to the church, opening doors for a new building, or whether he's sending persecution, our trust is in him. And then Asa says, Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee, and in thy name we go against this multitude. O Lord, thou art our God. Let not man prevail against thee. So the Lord smote the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. Why did Asa win that battle? It was because he used his season of rest wisely. He was prepared. He had fortified. What does this have to do with our church? How should we be using this season of rest? You say we have peace. We, we, have, we have rest. We have, we have a, a great sweet spirit amongst us right now. Yes, and we need to be using that to fortify ourselves. I'm, I'm thankful for the relationships we have in this church, but you know what? I want them to get deeper. I'm thankful for the times of preaching and teaching we have in this church, but I want them to get better. Because I want us to be fortified. I want us to be solidified so that we'll be able to stand in God's help, trusting in Him, we'll be able to stand no matter what comes up against us. I think it's a good thing to have this building project. I think it's a good opportunity for us. Philip's prayer was spot on. 
that, that the Lord might use this project as an opportunity for us not just to grow into another building, but to grow in unity. And I hope that when trouble comes, when trial comes, whether it happens amongst those in this room or whether it happens from some outside faction, we could say, we built a building together. We, we ate in each other's homes. We fellowshiped with one another. We can stand in unity by the help of God, no matter what comes up against us. They didn't waste their peace. So how should we as a church be using our peace and rest? Let's try to get specific according to the verse. So look back in Acts 9 and verse 31. We've seen there's a pacification. But secondly, I want you to see in this verse edification. Edification. Notice it says, Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. Notice, and were edified. To edify means to build up means to bring to a place of maturity. The word in this verse literally refers to building a house. The Bible speaks of the church in 1 Timothy 3.15 as the house of God. And it's not talking about the physical building. It's talking about the people. A season of rest should be a time used for building up the church. It's not a time to be sinfully satisfied with where we are. Yes, we ought to recognize God's goodness. Yes, we ought to be thankful for all he's done. But we also ought to have a holy discontentment and a godly desire for more. We want more of him. We want more of his grace. We want more of his presence. One of the things we should want more of is edification. Lord, you are building us up. And we thank you for building, but keep building us. Until you reach glory, you're never finished. You're always growing. You're always being built. The same is true for churches. There's no such thing as a perfect church. No such thing as a completed church. Whether you've been in existence for three years or 300 years, there's room to grow. So we should desire a greater knowledge of God, a greater understanding of the Word of God. That's what edification is. The chief instrument for the building up of the Christian and the church is the Word of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes, Desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. If we want to be edified, we must give our attention to the word of God, both in private and in public. Peter commands us, desire the word of God that you may grow. So I could ask the question, do you desire edification? Right? Do you want to know more of God? And of course we'd all say yes, but you know what a better question is, a little bit more pressing question is? Do you desire the Word of God? And have you given yourself to the Word of God? Do you give yourself to the Word of God? Because that is the question that will reveal whether or not we have a desire, a sincere desire for edification. So let me ask you, in 2023... 
Did you give yourself to the word of God in private? Did you commit yourself to the daily and systematic reading of Scripture? Or did you start a Bible plan in January and then quit in March when you got to Leviticus? <laughs> if you fell short in 2023, I have good news for you. You can make 2024 the year that you really give yourself to the Word of God while you have a season of peace. There may, you know, there may come a time. There may come a time if God doesn't continue to give us this season of peace where we won't have the luxury of opening up a premium leather-bound Bible on our lap and just reading the Word. Give yourself to the Word of God in private. Make it a part of your daily life. And as much as you need physical food, you need spiritual food. Because Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Have you ever wondered why there are Christians who have been believers for years, even decades, yet it seems they have little more maturity than a new convert? It's because they've squandered their peace. They've wasted their rest. And in all their years of professing the faith, they have not once read the Bible in its entirety. And I, I, I must confess, and I don't want to, to allow personal opinion or personal feeling enter in. It's, this is one of the things I struggle with the most. And that is, I, I just don't understand Christians that don't read their Bibles. When the Lord opened my eyes to see the Bible as the Word of God, I wanted to devour that book. It's all, I could, it's all I could do was sit and read my Bible. And yet, the testimony of three years of pastoral ministry is that if you could just get a good portion of the church to just read a chapter of the Bible every day, that is a, that is a victory of victories. God has given us a, a resource of wealth and nutrition. And he says, all you do is you expose yourself to it. I'll nourish you with the word. He's given it to you. Don't expect to be edified and see growth in your Christian life apart from the private ministry of the word of God. Well, did you give yourself to the word of God in public in 2023? Were you faithful to the preaching of the Word of God on the Lord's Day. What did you do with that preaching? Did you meditate upon it? Did you receive it with a humble heart? The greatest encouragement that a pastor can receive is not just a, 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 a lauding compliment on a sermon, but when, whenever I hear of someone with, with a specific statement about how something that was preached affected them, that is the most encouraging thing because it, it shows me that they, they listened. They got something out of it and God ministered to them through it. So did you meditate upon it? Did you receive it with a humble heart? Let me ask you this. Did you prepare yourself for the preaching of the word? You know, in the Old Testament, the, the Jews had a customary preparation for the Sabbath. 
How do you prepare yourself for the Lord's Day? What do you do on Saturday evening? Stay up as late as you can, binge watching your favorite TV show? What do you do Sunday morning? Get up, you know, just with enough time to barely make it on time? Or do you prepare yourself? Do you prepare your heart? You can look at me and tell very quickly that I don't, I don't know this illustration personally, but I've been told that you can't just go to the gym and immediately start hitting the weights. You can't just... I know I couldn't. I mean, I, I would be down for the count if I just tried to go in there and pick up a heavy weight. I might, I might get a few reps in, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feel it. the next. I'm not going to profit from the exercise. It's going to do more damage to me than good because I didn't warm up. I didn't stretch. I didn't prepare. Well, think about your soul as a spiritual muscle. You need to prepare for the exercise of receiving preaching. Prepare your soul. You would be amazed at how different, if, if, if maybe, and, and let me say, I have no specific person or situation in mind with any of this. But if you struggle sometimes with corporate worship, if you come to church and you, you don't get anything out of it or you, 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 know, you just you feel like, oh, God didn't really meet with me, you would be amazed at the change that would take place if you just prepared your heart. Mm-hmm. Could be as simple as setting that alarm clock on Sunday morning just an hour earlier and getting up and, and you know, if you know, we're, hey, we're preaching through 1 Corinthians, maybe I ought to read chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians and just already start to meditate upon that chapter and to think about what I'm going to be hearing preached. Get alone in a, in a corner with a cup of coffee in my Bible and, and just, just speak with the Lord, pray with the Lord, and then kiss my wife and smile at her and get in the car and ride to church with her, and then with my heart prepared, with, with joy and gladness in my soul, enter into the worship of God, you'd be amazed at the difference that would make than uh, you know, getting up on Sunday, scrolling through Facebook and TikTok and whatever else, just like you do all the other days of the week, and uh, just getting up and getting dressed and rushing out the door and barely making it in, and I haven't even cracked my Bible in three days, and now I'm going to hear the Word of God preached. No wonder it's not profiting to my soul. How do you warm your heart? Were you faithful to the word of God as it was taught at our midweek prayer meetings? And I know there are providential hindrances. I know there are are distances and work, and I, I understand all of that. And we have tried to help with some of those things by the streams that we do on Wednesday nights now. If not, why not? What was it that kept you from being able to faithfully give yourself to that means of grace? We have men's meetings and we have women's meetings that meet each month to discuss the Word of God and things taught in the Word of God. Do you attend those meetings? I'm not seeking to bind anyone's conscience. I'm not seeking to give anyone a misplaced feeling of guilt. I'm simply saying that by God's grace, there are many opportunities at this church to receive the Word of God. And I passionately encourage you to avail yourself to as many of those opportunities as you can. And Lord willing, this building will give us even more opportunities. More opportunities to fellowship and to think about the things of God. In this secular world that pulls at our attention and pulls at our our affections, 
Is it not true that what we need more than just about anything else is just to be together as the people of God? Most of us, myself included, spend far more time with our coworkers than we do with our, our church members. And I get it. We live in this age. We have physical responsibilities and necessities. We have to do those things. But that means anytime we, we can, let's take it as an opportunity to spin together and encourage one another. We, we like to quote that verse, and it's so often misquoted because really the primary emphasis has nothing to do with church necessarily. Right? Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. But that wasn't primarily talking about Sunday morning service. That was talking about other opportunities for fellowship, for encouragement. Because what does it say? So much more as you see the day approaching. Admonish one another. Encourage one another. That doesn't happen Sunday morning while I'm preaching. That happens Sunday afternoon after the preaching is done. Sunday evening when we meet for meals with one another. Wednesday night before prayer when we're talking and sharing burdens. That's when those things happen. Farmer can throw out food all day long, but if the sheep don't show up when it's time to eat, they don't get fed. So are you showing up with a prepared heart when it's time for your soul to feast upon the word of God? Well, if we want to grow in our edification, we must learn to take the word of God very seriously. And when we do, what follows in this verse begins to take place. So we see edification, Second, uh, we see edification, Pacification and edification. Now I want you to see sanctification. Notice, he says they were edified, and then he gives us this phrase, and what what you'll see is that this phrase actually describes the nature of their multiplication, but we'll get to that in a minute. But what I want you to notice here is that this sanctification, there's two aspects of the work of sanctification that's taking place. There is a fear of the Lord, And there is a filling of the Spirit. Notice, he says, walking, they were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost. Both of these things are the outworkings of edification. These are the things that come as a result of the Word of God having an effect on our lives. This verse also tells us that these are things that we walk in. Walking conveys the idea of progression and pilgrimage. By progression, I mean that there's growth in these things. There's an increase in these things. The more you're edified by the word, the more you grow in your fear of the Lord. The more you grow in the reality of the Spirit's fullness in your life. But walking also speaks of our pilgrimage, doesn't it? We as Christians are travelers. We're going somewhere. We're we're traveling to a better country. And so I ask you, do you find yourself becoming more and more detached from the world? Are you growing in a greater sense that this world is not my home? I feel pretty at home when I'm here at church, but man, I tell you, out in the world, I feel like a stranger. I feel weird. Do you long, do you long for a heavenly country? Do you long for a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God? The man or woman who is a friend of the world is certainly a stranger (coughs) to God. 
But the Christian who feels most comfortable in the presence of God will also feel out of place in this sin-cursed world. We're pilgrims. But this verse also tells us that we, as the church of Jesus Christ, are walking. We're walking. And it is how we walk that indicates where we walk. Walking in the Bible is a common reference to the conduct and behavior of a Christian. Colossians 1.10 says that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. 1 Thessalonians 4.1 Furthermore then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. 1 John 2.6 He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walks. So Christian, how is your walk? Are you walking in a way that is worthy of the Lord? Are you walking with consistency? Of course, yes, you will stumble and you will fall down. But when you do, do you get back up and keep going? Is sin the abnormal exception in your daily life or does sin characterize the essence of your life? When you sin, do you repent of that sin, receive forgiveness for that sin, and keep walking by the grace of God? Or has sin hindered your walk and slowed you down and stopped you from following after the Lord Jesus with your whole heart? Mm -hmm. I, I heard an illustration from Paul Washer one time. It's dated. It's obsolete. It doesn't, you know, you preach this to the younger generation. They don't understand this illustration. But he said that the, the Christian walk can be kind of understood this way. The difference between following me around with a, with a snapshot camera and a video recorder. He said, if you follow me around with a snapshot camera, you can take pictures of me when I'm kicking the cat and yelling at my wife and sinning. And you can string up all these pictures of my sins. You could say, see there, he's not a Christian. Look at all these things he did just last week. But if you followed me around with a video recorder you would see that I am a man who is very imperfect and who is often beset by sin, but bless God, I'm going in a consistent direction. And those snapshots, those pictures, those sins, they don't characterize my walk. They're, they're hindrances, they're obstacles in my walk, but they don't characterize my walk. My walk is characterized by a following after the Lord Jesus Christ. We find that the churches in our verse didn't just talk the talk, they walked the walk. Notice the verse doesn't say that they professed the fear of the Lord. No, it says they walked in the fear of the Lord. Don't tell me that you fear the Lord with your words. Show me that you fear the Lord with the way you live your life. That's what this verse is preaching to us. The fear of the Lord is a holy respect and devotion to his commandments. I don't think I could define it any better than the Puritan Thomas Watson. He said, The fear of the Lord is a reverence for the divine being, an awareness of the divine presence, and a regard for the divine will. Fear of the Lord is fundamentally an attitude that results from a proper view of God. Where do you get a proper view of God? From the Word of God. From the edification of the scriptures. You see the progression in the text? See how it builds? Christians who do not fear the Lord have a very low view of God 
a low view of his holiness and a low view of his authority. But Christians who do fear the Lord have a very high view of God, a very exalted view of his character, and a very magnified view of his sovereignty in their lives. Fear of the Lord is an expression often used to denote piety and righteousness in our lives. Job 28.28 says, And unto man he said, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. You fear the Lord, you seek wisdom, you depart from evil. Fear of the Lord is at the heart of what true godliness is. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is not a horror or a dread. It's not a slavish fear of condemnation because perfect love drives out that kind of fear. Fear of the Lord is not bondage. It's not a fear of hell, such as may be had by a lost person who does not know God. No, this is a fear that is unique to the Christian who reverences God as his heavenly Father. In fact, it can only be had by a Christian. Because it's a fear that comes from a loving desire to not want to do anything that may displease the Lord. Even the man, Christ Jesus, had this kind of fear. When he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, as his sweat became as drops of blood, why did he he pray? Why was he afraid? Was he afraid of the cross? No, it was a fear that came from realizing that he was about to become the very thing that displeased his heavenly Father as he took on the sins of his people. And so what did he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Because the human will of the Lord Jesus was to not do anything that displeased God. I don't want to become sin because I don't want to suffer under the wrath of God and be separated from God. So nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. The divine will. Do you have this kind of fear of the Lord in your life? And I would just urge you not to answer that question too quickly. But consider yourself. Think about the decisions that you make. The little ones and the big ones. Do you make them with an abiding fear of the Lord? Do you stop and ask yourself, what would God think about this? Every sin that you ever commit is an instance of you not fearing the Lord. But it is the fear of the Lord that will keep us from committing even the sins that so easily beset us. When you're all alone and and no one's around to see, you can't click on it. Why? Because you're afraid your wife might find out? No, because you fear the Lord. That's why. And He sees all the time. And even if no one ever knows, God would know. And I would know. And when I do set unholy things before my eyes, and when I do allow unholy words to leave my mouth, when I do entertain unholy thoughts, you know what I'm saying? I'm professing in that moment that I fear missing out on some temporary carnal pleasure more than I fear the living and true God. 
You want to find out if you really fear the Lord, then ask yourself, who am I when it's just me and God? When no one else is around to see, when you're all alone, does the fear of the Lord lead you to repent of your sins and walk in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ? Imagine what would happen in our country, in our community, if churches all around were endued with a a supernatural sense of a fear of the Lord. If God sends revival, it will come with a deep and penetrating fear of the Lord that causes us to say, Oh God, don't let me do anything, say anything, or even think anything that would displease you. You won't care about what brother so-and-so thinks or what sister so-and-so thinks. The only thing you'll care about is what's God think. But thank God that this portrait of a revived church also includes the sanctifying comfort of the Holy Ghost. God is so good to us. He never brings us to despair. So he says, yes, you must have a fear of the Lord, but guess what you also have? You have the comfort the Holy Ghost. Comfort speaks to the one of the very titles of the Holy Ghost. He is the comforter. John 14 and verses 16 and 17. Jesus says, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. The comfort of the Holy Ghost. The English word comfort comes from a Latin word with two parts, con meaning with and forte meaning power. So to walk in the comfort of the Holy Ghost is to walk in a way that is empowered by the Holy Ghost. To be filled with the Spirit is to be controlled with the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit. I think I said in a recent sermon, the only infallible way to be led by the Spirit is through the precepts of the Word of God. The companion passage of Ephesians 5.18, Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. The companion passage is Colossians 3.16, which says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Why do I say it's a companion passage? Because if you read those two texts, the results of being filled with the Spirit and the results of the Word of God dwelling in you richly are identical. You begin to thank God. You begin to sing, magnify the Lord with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You could argue that's really what revival is. A church is revived when... All the members of the church come under a manifest display of the Spirit's filling in each of their lives. So I ask in what ways is the Holy Spirit your comforter? In what ways does He empower you? How is He he ministering to you? Are you filled with the Spirit? Are you yielding to the Spirit? When the Holy Ghost convicts you with the Word of God, do you listen to His admonition? If He convicts you of the need to repent of a sin, do you repent of that sin? If He convinces you to do something, do you do it? Do you listen to Him? If you're not yielding to the Spirit, you're quenching the Spirit. And I am convinced that one of the reasons why the church 
is in the, not, not this church, but the church is in the state that it's in today is because of an overabundance of Christians who live their lives yielding to the desires of the flesh because they don't know anything about the experiential power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm also convinced that if God is pleased to send revival, we will see a pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the people of God by which the Spirit empowers them to live holy lives in the fear of the Lord. That's that's my prayer for this congregation. You say, the Holy Spirit is here. Absolutely He's here. The Holy Spirit is comforting us. Absolutely He's comforting us. But you know what I want in 2024? I want more. I want more of Him. I want more of the Spirit controlling my life and leading me and guiding me to exercise spiritual gifts, to be a blessing to others in the church, to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, to do all things that please Him. I want that for all of us. And by the way, this isn't crazy charismatic theology. If you think that, that just shows how far we are removed from a biblical doctrine of the Holy Spirit. This is historic, orthodox, reformed, experiential Calvinism. The theology that led the Reformation, the theology of the Great Awakenings, the theology of other revivals in the history of the church was an experiential Calvinistic theology that understood the vital importance of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer and in the life of the church. I'm afraid some churches have changed the Trinity to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. It's like they're afraid of the Holy Ghost. So if someone asks me, I have no problem telling them, I'm a Calvinist as the day is long. I believe all five points. If there were five more, I'd believe those too. But listen, I hate, and I don't use that word lightly, I hate any kind of Calvinism that is cold and dry and cerebral and doesn't produce a holy life of walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Don Curran says, Great preacher. Write that name down. I'll give it to you later. Go listen to him preach on this doctrine. I can hear him. I can close my eyes and hear him saying, I want the truth of the word of God to make my heart dance. To invigorate me. I don't want it to just be some dead, callous theology. Praise God for good theology. Praise God for our confession of faith. Praise God for the tradition of Reformed and particular Baptist theology that we have come to inherit. We we are not afraid of doctrine and theology around here. We teach it and we preach it and we use big words. Amen. But if that's all it is, if it's just a a communication of information, if it's just my mind speaking to your mind and it never gets to the heart, we're dead. We're dead. I don't think we're dead, by the way. I think we're very lively. Remember what I said at the outset of this message. This is not a, this is not a rebuke. This is not a, uh, we're failing miserably and we need to get back on track. This is, realize what a wonderful thing God has done. That we have it. We have passionate theology. Let's not lose it. Let's not lose it. But let's build it up. Let's go deeper with it. It's like God has given us this flame and it's our job to keep it burning it's our job to to keep the fire going don't let it go out well lastly we've seen there's a pacification the church has had rest there's edification they're being built up there's a sanctification 
which involves walking in the fear of the Lord, the comfort of the Holy Ghost. But lastly, I want you to see in this text, there is a multiplication. Now, if there's any one aspect of this verse that that I would have to assess and say, yeah, we haven't really seen too much of that, it would be this one. Multiplication. doesn't just say they added a new family. It says they were multiplied. And it doesn't tell us how many were added, but in keeping with the the, the pattern in the book of Acts, it's safe to assume it was a pretty big number. It's, you know, when 3,000 people were added to one church on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2 refers to that as a multiplication. Edification refers to their spiritual growth, but this multiplication refers to their numerical growth. And that tells me that there's nothing wrong with praying and seeking and desiring numerical growth in a church. What we see in this verse is God multiplying his work in churches that are located in the midst of a pagan society. And he doesn't do it by modeling the church after the pattern of the world. He doesn't do it by patterning the church to be appealing to unbelievers. He does it by a sovereign act of his grace. And I must confess that I often struggle with believing that God is willing to do this today. I believe he's able. My theology teaches me that God can do anything he wants to. But I struggle with believing, Lord, do you, do you want to? Do you desire to? Or are you just done with us? Are you done with America? Are you done with the Western English-speaking world? Have we so quenched the Spirit by our pride and our sinfulness and our open immorality that you're just done with us? I pray not. I believe that because of the sins of our society, and our, you, listen, you can't murder 70 million babies and not face the wrath of God. That's right. So as for the country, as for the political realm, it's over. But here's what I want to believe. And I say I want to believe because some days, if I'm being honest with you, I don't know if I believe it. But I want to believe that even... In the midst of wrath, even with impending and certain judgment, God will still revive his churches and give us a se- It might be a season of 100 years. It might be a season of 500 years. It might be a season of five months. But God, give us a season of joy in the Holy Ghost where, where about we are able to worship you even though judgment is all around us on every side. These churches, in the midst of pagan Rome, in the midst of, of a Roman Society were able to be revived in the Holy Spirit and to serve and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Is God willing to send revival in our land to our church? Here's what I do know. I do know that we cannot schedule revival. I'm not a fan of churches that have revival meetings as if revival is going to come August 22nd to August 26th at 7 p.m. because those are the dates we put up on the sign. We can schedule meetings to pray for revival. We can schedule meetings to seek God's face for revival and to preach the word with hopes that God will give revival, but we can't cause revival. I also know that we can't control who God adds to the church. It's his business. We can go out. We can pass out tracts. We can preach on the streets. We do all of that, by the way. But we can't force anyone to be added to this church. But I do believe that the book of Acts gives us a pattern that reveals our responsibility 
Acts 2, verse 42 and verse 47, praising God, having favor with all people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Acts 6 and verse 7, and the word of God increased and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. Acts 16 and verse 5, and so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. Do you see the pattern? It's repeated in our verse. You have edification, sanctification, and then you have multiplication. That's the pattern. And so if we want God to add to us, it is our responsibility to give ourselves to the word of God, to grow in our fear of God, and yield ourselves to the spirit of God, and then by his grace, God may be pleased to add others who will do the same. You say, well, that's not the quickest way to build a congregation. I mean, if we, if we wanted to pack that building out, we'd do away with the preaching. We'd do away with the theology. We'd do away with the prayer meeting. We'd bring in the band. We'd bring in the light show. We'd bring in the circus act. You're right. This verse, what I'm preaching, is not the quickest way to build a congregation, but it's the only way to build a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Too many in our day want the multiplication without the edification and the sanctification. Give us the large crowd, do away with the holiness. Give us the large crowd, do away with the word of God. They want their large megachurches built on the principles and practices of worldliness and carnality. But did you notice that multiplication comes at the end of this verse? If we multiply without edification and a fear of the Lord and a comfort of the Holy Ghost, then we may have a gathered crowd, but we haven't built a true church. Numerical growth without spiritual growth is not the blessing of God, but the curse of God. We have to take one or the other. Give me a small church that loves God and follows His Word and walks in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Ghost. And if it's, you know what, if it's us 14 and no more till heaven, praise be to God. Amen. But yet, while we keep our noses to the grindstone and our eyes focused toward the things of the Word of God and walking in the fear of the Lord, we also do so praying that God would add to us. Mm -hmm. That He would use us to be a means of reaching this community with the gospel of His dear Son. So in these days of peace, let us be a church that desires a reviving work of God according to the Scriptures. May we become more and more enamored with the sinless Lamb of God who shed His blood for us on the cross and sent His Spirit into our hearts to regenerate us unto a lively hope of Him who called us from the dead. And if peradventure you're here today and you don't know the Lord, do not go into another year dead in your trespasses and sins. But let me declare to you that the God of heaven who created you and created everything has sent a Savior into the world. And you who have sinned against the law of God and broken the commandments of God and earned for yourself and just eternal condemnation in hell, he has sent a Savior to redeem even you 
And there is not a good work you could perform. There is not an amount of money that you could give, a baptism that you could be baptized with, or a church that you could join to ever earn salvation. It is freely given through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. He never committed a single wrong against God or his fellow man. And yet his life ended numbered among the transgressors. Why? Because he took upon himself. He had no sins of his own, but he took upon himself the sins of all those who would ever believe in him. And he marched all the way to Golgotha and on a hill called Calvary, Jesus my Lord suffered for me. He was nailed to a Roman cross and he hung there, suspended between heaven and earth as the wrath of Almighty God was poured out upon him And he died. He gave up his life. The wrath of God was satisfied. The sins of his people were forever cast into the depths of the deepest sea, never to resurface. He was buried, and three days later, he rose again from the grave to declare his victory. He rose for our justification. And now he's ascended And he sits at the right hand of the Father and he sent his spirit into the world to go and reclaim all of his people. Have you believed the gospel? Have you placed your faith in this Savior? Are you walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost? Are we doing that as a church? If we are, then I pray that God will do the work of multiplying us, growing us, Abigail said to me the other day, as we were driving home from the new building, she said, she said, what an exciting time this is. She said, wouldn't it be great 10, 15, 20 years from now, supposing that everyone is still here, still fellowshipping, to be able to sit around and say, do you remember when? Do you remember when we used to meet in that 400 square foot building on North Poplar Street? Do you remember when? You know, Ken could reach out from the pulpit and lay hands on the people sitting on the front pew because that's just how small. Do you remember when we met in that little building and the toilet was like six yards from the pulpit? Do you remember when? Do you remember when it was just just four families? Didn't have nothing? But we met together and we loved one another and we committed ourselves to the Lord? He blessed us. He cared for us. And our children grew up in this church. We saw souls saved. We saw baptisms. We broke bread. We took the cup together. And through it all, the Lord was good. He was good. He gave us rest. And he edified us. And he he allowed us to walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Ghost. May this be our prayer for 2024. Heavenly Father, we thank you. You are so good to us. Whether we have much or whether we have little, you are the God who gives every good gift and every perfect gift. We thank you for giving rest to your churches. We thank you for the word of God 
for its center place at this church. We thank you for the Spirit, how he ministers amongst us. Oh God, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In wrath, remember mercy. And give us a vision for the future, a vision to see great things, to see Christ lifted up, to see sinners saved, to see saints sanctified, all for the glory and honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.